As a child of the 1970s, one of the things on my list of potential investigations was the Bermuda Triangle, a phenomenon so well known it inspired a Barry Manilow song. Its fame, though, means that it has been thoroughly investigated, although admittedly mostly by Channel 5. The other problem is that the expenses budget for your humble PI wouldn't stretch as far as Bermuda. It would only stretch as far as Manchester, which fortunately was enough, for Britain has its very own Bermuda Triangle. In the north of the Derbyshire Peak District is the Dark Peak, an ominous name for an ominous area in which literally scores of aircraft, both military and civilian, have fallen out of the sky. Add in freak weather, strange geology and ghostly happenings, and clearly it was chocks away for another mission. It was a case of historical detection, which would take me back to the darkest days of the Second World War, of getting up in a crate for a pop of Jerry, famous bombing raids and heroic daring do. So, in wet and windy weather, I found myself driving to Glossop on the western edge of the peaks. Now, I think we may need to turn right up here. I'd made an appointment to see um, Joe Bamford, an aviation historian who studied the Derbyshire air crashes and had promised to show me documents on these curious goings-on. There's a synopsis of all the different types that crashed. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine Spitfires, three Stirlings, two Mustangs. So in the 1940s, 50s, how many planes crashed in the Dark Peak area? Approximately 50, 55. Gosh, that's four or five a year. Yeah. Can you think of another part of the United Kingdom that has any kind of comparable ratio of air crashes? Not to the extent of the Peak District. I, I don't, I'm not aware anyway of uh, any other part of the country which has had this density of crashes. It seems to be like the Bermuda Triangle for aircraft crashes. They're all inexplicable. If the dead men could come back and talk, there'd be some really remarkable stories told. Nobody will ever really know. When these planes were being lost, would anybody outside of the immediate local area have known about it? No, they tried to keep it quiet. Let me tell you about the Hamden, 22nd of May 1940. The Hamden was one of the first uh, bombers used by Bomber Command during the war. And this particular aircraft uh, was on a raid to Mannheim and they were on the way back. It was a wicked night on that particular occasion. The radio went dead, and all they picked up was divert to Hall. So they weren't sure where they should divert to. Some presumed it was Stradish Hall, some diverted to Milden Hall in Suffolk. Unbeknown to the crew, they were way off course and probably desperately looking for any signs of life on the ground, lights or beacons, airfields, desperate, running out of fuel knowing that sometime soon the engines are going to stop. They crashed into the ground near Holmforth. There's a letter written by one of the crew who was on that same raid. He says, uh, as to why they crashed into the hillside, I don't suppose one will ever know. Is there an element of folklore in this area about these crashes and... I, I think there is something up there. You don't see things, you don't see things. You, but if you stand there quietly, you feel things. There's a sort of spooky feel up there. Wreckage of these planes still, still visible up on the peak? Yes, there are remains up there of the aircraft. 
is B29, I think, comes to mind. I, I think that's probably the most inexplicable. There were talk about possible causes of the aircraft crashing, but nobody will ever really know. But I was determined to find out. I wanted to visit the site where the B-29 had come down and see the remaining evidence for myself. Wary of the spooky feelings, I'd been advised not to go up on the moors alone. That's where we're going, high point over there, Locals Peter Jackson and Phil Shaw offered to take me up there via the Snake Pass. Where are we going? We're there. I see. Right. Not to there. Now at about 2,000 feet, National Park Rangers Phil and Peter would guide me through the treeless landscape of bleak moors and peat bogs. Quite wet, as you can see, because uh, I think it rained last night. You grew up in, in Gossip, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I was what is hills since being a small child and uh, came up here with my father. And had you always known that there were all these plane wrecks? Yeah, because he was a fireman on the Russell Fire Service uh, from before the war. And uh, a consequence, he came out to quite a few of them when he came down. Uh, and this one we're going to today particularly was involved in. In lots of instances, they never knew what had happened. They thought it was just guesswork, really. I can't see anything at all except completely uninhabited moorland. Imagine in this silence what the sound of a fully laden bomber exploding must have sounded like. I've got a lot more walking to do to reach the B-29 crash site. We were then going to look at another crash site, passing a third three of many dozens, including a plane with something no good mystery should ever be without, a connection to the Kennedys. The Liberator PV4Y, they've been out into the Bay of Biscay looking for German submarines, and we should called early because of the bad weather. There was a number of aircraft on the same operation, one flown by uh, Joe Kennedy, who was the younger brother of John F. Kennedy. They got themselves lost. They were going up and down, playing snakes and ladders, it seems, for quite a few hours. So there was, there was panic. Supposedly ended up over Lincolnshire when the pilots uh, gave the order to abandon the aircraft. Set on board 16 depth charges, each consisting of 250 pounds of Torpex high explosive, so it was a flying bomb, literally. And uh, he put it on automatic pilot on a heading of 290 degrees, and as it happened, it was heading towards Manchester. It thundered along scraping roofs and just missing chimneys. A lot of people rushed out to see this huge roaring black shape. Across the town of Mosley and thudded into the hard grit moor known as Broken Ground, 1,500 feet above sea level. It's almost, um, I would almost say it's unbelievable, but it actually happened. It doesn't make sense. Um, this is Bleakland, as you see, remote and beautiful. Finally, a glint of metal, and there on the English hills, we came upon the remains of an American B-29 super fortress. Well, goodness me, wreckage scattered. A bit of fuselage just lying on the ground right in front of me. Yeah, there's pieces of plain fuselage just lying all over the ground. I don't know whether people have moved them or whether that's where they fell. This is a really big plane, wasn't it? It was. The, the largest aircraft of World War II. What was its job? 
reconnaissance squadron. It had been involved in the atomic bomb attacks on Japan. And then it had been involved in the Berlin airlift. Then they'd been stationed at Scampton in Lincolnshire. Flight of three, uh, being led by Captain Landon Tanner, on the day he was flying a uh, flight of three over to Burtonwood near Warrington when the accident happened. So it's 60 years now since this crash, and yet you can still clearly make out large parts of the plane. Nose wheel down there, main wing with undercarriage. You see the hydraulic leg here. And there's even still rubber bits of tyre attached to it. I discovered the crew of the B-29 were among a vast number who lost their lives in training exercises or everyday duties. For reasons of morale, many of these sorts of accidents were hushed up, so in a way, the metal remains on the peaks serve as a memorial to scores of Allied aircrew whose deaths were no less tragic for having happened on home soil on routine missions. The engines, of course, one, two, three and four. Because they were thrown forward, so the main impact site was just down there. There was some very valuable cargo on board, I gather. Yes, there was the Wells Fargo pay for um, Burtonwood staff. Phil will tell you how much was on it. $13,000, apparently, in 1948. Yeah. $13,000 was quite a lot of money, you know. Yeah. First uh, the spooky feelings, then the Kennedys, now a plane laden with money. Curiouser and curiouser. Press on then before the uh, weather closes. It must be two hours now since we left the car, and we haven't seen a soul. We're climbing quite steeply uh, up to the next ridge in search of a Lancaster this time, I believe. We're now here at the crash site of uh, Lancaster. So it's May the 18th, 1945, so. So the Second World War had just finished. It was less than two weeks after the end of the war. This was a very important area for Lancasters, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. The, the Dambusters squadron flew missions down the Durant Reservoirs because of the similarity between the Durant Dams and the, the Dams in Germany. Having hiked for four hours and inspected the wreckage of several planes, I needed to mount my own air crash investigation. The question I couldn't stop asking myself was, why had there been so many? Joe Bamford hadn't been able to explain it. Could it be that something strange had lured those planes to their fates? Back down in Glossop, I'd arranged to meet Dr David Clark from Sheffield University, who studied the local legends. The Dark Peak has got a long, very deep, rich folklore. Um, ghost stories, there are rumours about witchcraft. I mean, there's stories about mysterious lights that appear on the hillsides and it went down in folklore basically that these lights were evil spirits and that they were that they were deliberately leading people astray on the moors why do you some of the old people that I've spoken to um, they said that their grandparents used to describe them as the devil's bonfires these lights and there is a link with um, with the devil in local folklore because you find it in place names there's a very um, dangerous bend called the devil's elbow and there's also a devil's bridge up on the moors, so there's obviously this link with, you know, things nasty and dark. Could those planes have had a close encounter of some kind? Airmen thinking they were on the approach to Manchester, but who in reality were over treacherously high ground. And what caused these lights? Aliens? Supernatural forces? 
David Clark offered a more rational theory. One explanation for these weird lights is that they are will-o'-the-wisps, which were created by marsh gas bubbling up through the areas of bogland, which you do get a lot of in this, in this general area, and the, the, the gas spontaneously igniting, and then that, that causing like a flame that people were led astray by. But will-o'-the-wisps alone couldn't account for the fates of scores of aircraft. And there's a limit to what you can tell from the ground. To assess the evidence properly, I needed to undertake some aerial reconnaissance. So I booked in a flight over the area in a light aircraft from Derby Aerodrome. To take my mind off this, I'm a nervous flyer, and I had just spent a day looking at plane wrecks, I decided to look for more leads. I wondered if the real Bermuda Triangle could offer up any more clues. Bermuda Triangle. Aha. Uh, yes, magnetic anomalies. If the planes were flying through a magnetic storm, all compasses could possibly malfunction. Aha! This was interesting, but I was sceptical, to say the least. Magnetic storms making compasses go haywire? I needed to double-check it with a geophysicist. I looked up Alan Thompson of the British Geological Survey. Surely there couldn't be any truth in it? Yes, there is. There's two ways, basically, that that can happen. One is due to solar magnetic activity and the way the sun's magnetism affects our own magnetic field. And these variations can be quite large. And the interesting thing there is that the variations are rapid and they do change with time. The second way is the naturally occurring magnetic rocks of the Earth, which can cause local deflections of the compass direction. And that really reflects the underlying geology of the environment. Um, now, the peak's clearly a very beautiful place, and the, the amount of magnetic activity, would, would that be enough to affect a, a plane's navigational systems? I wouldn't think so. The change in the compass direction is nothing unusual for the United Kingdom. So, so if something was causing navigational errors over the peak districts, would it be more likely to be the solar effects? I think that's probably true, and it would be interesting to see if such events had occurred back in the 1940s and 50s. So, uh, if we were able to give you um, dates, would you be able to check for us what the solar activity was? Yes, yes, we could do that. May the 23rd, 1940, mm -hmm. uh, December the So maybe I was onto something. While I awaited the results, I needed to follow up some other lines of inquiry. My research on the Bermuda Triangle had also mentioned odd weather patterns. Were there any odd weather patterns here in the peaks? I met up with Alan Goodman of the Met Office. Out of the Greater Manchester conurbation, flying eastward certainly, it's the first high ground that you, you hit. And pilots, aviators who use Manchester Airport regularly are well aware of the fact that in certainly a westerly airflow, winds coming from the west generally tends to produce some of the poorest aviation conditions in terms of cloud base and visibility and the like. Coming straight off the Irish Sea, they're quite moist, they're quite damp. And when they hit this plateau of higher ground, the air, of course, is forced to rise up, and that encourages cloud to form. And when the air is very damp and very moist, that cloud's going to be very low. It'll be clinging either close to the surface of the land or right on the land as fog. Thinking back, say, about half a century, is there anything else that might have affected 
the way the planes were able to navigate in this area. It was before the advent of the Clean Air Act, so there certainly would have been much higher levels of air pollution from the factories in and around Greater Manchester. And what air pollution particles do is they tend to encourage clouds to form, so there would have been an even greater frequency of days where we had this lower-level cloud hanging around the area. One of the most eminent climatologists did comment on the trend that was apparent during the late 40s. The weather tended to be a bit more sluggish, if you like, in its progression, and so that would have given rise to a greater incident of days when there was, you know, poorer conditions for flying. And that probably contributed towards a higher frequency of pilot error. Hmm. So, cloud, pollution and sluggish weather. But what about those magnetic anomalies? I phoned back geophysicist Alan Thompson to see if the dates of those solar storms corresponded with the dates of the crashes. Okay, well, I looked at the magnetic records from the 1940s and I noticed there were some big magnetic storms, large changes in compass variation... 1940 and 1941 in particular, but nothing on the dates, the six dates that you supplied me. So magnetic variations don't seem to have a role to play here, and I think you're going to have to look elsewhere for explanations. Oh dear, the inquiry was struggling to take off. What I needed was an expert witness. Uh, right, aviation... Someone who knew the world of aviation inside out. The flight lieutenant, squadron leader, wing commander... And I found one. Not just any old expert, but a wing commander and former air accident investigator who worked on the Lockerbie case. Wing commander Bernie Forward. Taking into account the technology of the day, his assessment of the evidence would prove pivotal. In the 1940s, most of the navigation would have been by dead reckoning, which is a mathematical system of navigation. And basically, it's a vector triangle where you allegedly know the wind direction now, and speed. Rain over the whole country with thunderstorms in going the back to the 1940s, the forecasting was not very good at all. The weather will continue warm except on the northeast coast. So those calculations could be way out. It was a very hit and miss affair. Were the crews necessarily trained in conditions that corresponded to Britain? A lot of them were not, no. We will continue to build up our The number of aeroplanes we had flying around it in the United Kingdom in those days was absolutely phenomenal. These forces will be remorselessly applied. Because of the need to get as many pilots through as quickly as possible, a lot of our people were trained in Canada in the Alberta flatlands. A lot of the American pilots were trained in Texas, which is flat as anything. Most of these flying training airfields were situated in places where the weather was good. So you would have a pilot who'd never seen bad weather in his life. And they'd say, OK, buddy, go to Europe. Planes still fly over this area? Yes, they do. I've done three accidents in my time at the Air Accident Investigation Branch. Three light aircraft uh, that have crashed into that area. All of which made me even more positive about my trip in a light aircraft over the dark peak. But to nail the case, it had to be done. Here we go, dark peak. I tried to work out my own vector triangle to make it from Derby Aero Club to Glossop using the fabled dead reckoning. OK, let's assume we're heading here. So, north. we need to... Has to be about north, 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 south, west... West, west, west. Is that right? So west a bit. I, I think this is hopeless. But my maths, frankly, wasn't up to it. Thankfully, there was a proper pilot on hand. 
This is our Cessna 172. This is a four-seat version. Paul Jones was to pilot the plane over the dark peak. Seatbelt here, rear seatbelt, backwards with that one there, and then that straps in. just a tiny aircraft, it was clear that this plane was packed with features those airmen of the 40s and 50s could only have dreamt of. We have a range of navigation equipment here, we've got a global positioning system, or GPS, radio navigation aids here. Paul had his GPS to guide us safely over the reservoirs where the dam busters had trained and was constantly in touch with air traffic control, assessing altitude and monitoring the movements of other aircraft. But, as Bernie Forward had told me, those aviators 60 years ago were on their own. It was very, very much a self-help basis. No air traffic control at all. Virtually no help from the ground whatsoever. How steady and calm the crew and skipper keeping on their cars. No radar to assist you at all. Plus the fact, of course, even if it was available, a lot of the time in the war, there would have been radio signals. I'd made such a good job of not appearing nervous that at 3,000 feet over Bakewell, Paul offered me control of the plane. This has happened to me once before, but I was 16. I was in an RAF chipmunk on a school cadet camp, and I was wearing a parachute. And I certainly wasn't heading for the dark peak with cloud building up from the south. We banked round over Bleaklow, sending my breakfast sharply to port, and the dark peak came into view. It was now possible to see just how difficult this area must have been to navigate. For a start, there are no real landmarks. Just coming up to the site of the B-29 crash, in fact, there's the wreckage down there. You can now see that if the plane had been just a couple of hundred yards to the south, it would have missed it. But that's... From the air, it was all too apparent that the B-29 had failed to clear the top of the hill by just a few hundred feet. Today was a clear day, but if the summit had been covered in cloud, it was horribly obvious how easily a pilot could make a mistake. It's just on the brow of the summit. Uh, 100 foot higher, I'd have made it, wouldn't I? 
We ourselves are dropping down now. Down. Nobody would deliberately fly into that area at that height. They must have all thought that they were somewhere else. Mm. So it's navigation error that led to all these people tragically going into the high ground. It's a staggering sight that we can see in the sky. In those days, pilots were not very proficient at flying on instruments. You see the ground, of course, then that's fine. You, you go by landmarks and rivers and coastlines and, and, and everything else. But, of course, with the weather in the United Kingdom, you can't always stay below cloud. Um, you're, no, you're very much forced, no. You are forced up into cloud. And the instrument flying is a procedure that you adopt when you can't see the real world either because you're in cloud or it's dark mm. at night. It's not too difficult if all is going well. Mm. But as soon as things start to go a little bit awry, it's a very stressful, uh, very stressful pastime. Virtually no autopilots. And if the pilot was distracted, if he was cold, if he was tired, the ground and the cloud can merge very subtly. Plus the fact the instruments weren't very good. So it wasn't until the, the, the mid-1950s that the Royal Air Force actually formalised instrument training. They didn't have that back in the 1940s. If you were a pilot, you were a pilot. You flew in any weather. Yes. Okay. <laughs> it's beginning to stack up very it, heavily it, against it, it. It stacks up very heavily against them. Okay, so it's time back towards home now. If the ground sticks up, you stand more chance of flying into it. It's as simple as that. And by the time you realise what's going on, you're just about to fly into the ground. So all you needed in the 1940s to fly an aeroplane was a really good pilot, totally accurate instruments, a very good weather forecast, and someone on board who could do maths. That would do it. Right. <laughs> and, enough, and enough fuel to get there. Oh, right. OK. <laughs> just those five things. Yes. Does it surprise you that so many planes crashed in this part of the peaks? No, given, the, given the, the technology and everything else at the time, it surprised me there, there weren't more. Right, is everybody strapped in alright? We've got four flat, we've got 60 knots, so we're coming in parallel to the runway. And we're holding it, holding it, holding it, holding it, and it'll touch down nice and gently, just like that. So, Bernie seemed certain the common factor in all those crashes was simple navigation error. Flying over the crash site, I realised just how many challenges those pilots faced and just how alone they were thousands of feet above the ground. They didn't have the luxury of choosing when to fly and they didn't have the technology to tell them where they were. Far from Bermuda Triangles, it was Vector Triangles that made planes disappear. It was mission accomplished. But the treachery of the Dark Peak would continue. And as for those will-o'-the-wisps, they still don't show up on any radar. When the clouds come down and the winds roll off the Atlantic, the Dark Peak is still a sinister place. Whispering 